I got to spend some time in the Regenstein Library, which is the main library of the University of Chicago, one of our largest and most prestigious libraries in the country. It would be a typical Saturday morning for me living in Kansas City. I would awaken somewhere in the neighborhood of 3 or 3.30 in the morning. I would get dressed in the bitter cold of those months, and I would drive to the airport at Kansas City. I'd get on an airplane by at least 6 o'clock. I'd fly to Midway Airport, not the nice airport in Chicago, and I would... Uh, get off of that plane, a student would pick me up and drive me out to Oak Park, which is west of the city, and for the next four hours, I would teach, whether it's theology or Greek or New Testament. I once taught a semester of Korean students Greek. That was fun. I had a translator. You can imagine some exciting days during those times. Immediately at the end of four hours of teaching from 8 to 12, I'd take a taxi cab down to the Regenstein Library. I'd go up to the fourth floor where in this humongous, prestigious uh, library in American um, institutionalism was everything that that institution had on Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. And I would proceed to copy every single page at the copy machine why these hands were machines themselves. I knew how to flip a page, turn a book with one hand, and press the copy button with the other hand. Over and over and over again, I would make copies of everything the library had to say about Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar. No, not from always a Christian perspective, Much of it was from an author named Philo, P-H-I-L-O. Philo was a first century Jewish author who commentated, that is, wrote commentaries on the Old Testament. He lived in Alexandria of Egypt, and he happened to write a great deal about Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar, nothing of which you would be excited to read. Yea, I have... Everything on Philo, still in my library, if you'd like to stop by. All that is to say, the preacher is preaching on his dissertation today. And one thing that the elders ought to always collaborate together to do is to never allow the preacher to preach on his dissertation. It sounds like it would be quite boring, but if you'll notice in your bulletin guide today, I want to know how it is that God relates to me. Now, if you remember, we've talked about covenants before. And in our last time together, we talked about it. And in a more general or broad way, we talked about how does God relate to his people. And uh, we argued that God relates to his people through this idea of covenant. God makes a promise or promises And uh, those promises can come with commands, and they also come with blessings if you follow his commands. They come with curses or uh, instruments of, of discipline for disobedience. And so God relates to his people through covenants. Well, that's all kind of good. I mean, we preached about it, so it better be good. But, you know, boots on the ground, I would really like to know how God relates to me. 
How is it when it comes down to my relationship with God? How does that happen? What does the Bible say about that? If you haven't been with us, we're going through a series called Aspire by Matt Rogers. It's a workbook you see many people carrying around if you don't uh, have one of those. And it's pretty much topical in each chapter as we go through. And this week we're in chapter 4 on God relating to his people through the story of the Bible. Through the story of the Bible. And um, probably, if you really want to know why I really latched on to this series on Aspire by Matt Rogers in the beginning, it was this chapter. It was this chapter that said that if we want to know how we relate to God, if we want to know how uh, to live the Christian life is another way of saying it, if we want to know uh, how we know and grow in our relationship with Jesus Christ, all of that is connected to the story of the Bible. Now, sometimes, as our author says, when we hear that word story, we get thrown off just a little bit because our growing up says stories, you know, are like Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs or, you know, Three Little Pigs. Those are stories. And so if you call the Bible a story, are, are you taking away from its authenticity, its sufficiency at all? And absolutely not. <coughs> Excuse me, but um, preachers and theologians today like to use the word narrative. That sounds more highfalutin. But the bottom line is, is that God works through story. God works through history. And the foundational thing that I want you to get right here in this introduction is the Bible doesn't mean something to you that it didn't mean to God. In fact, the Bible doesn't mean something to you that it doesn't mean to me. What we need to discover is, is what did God mean when he wrote it before we just go taking off into how that applies to me. And our author, Matt Rogers, wants us to make sure that we understand that the meaning for our lives is intertwined with the meaning of the Bible and the entire biblical story. Now, um, to further press that on, and this introduction is quite long. In fact, I would say to you that the notes that you have on the back of your bulletin, you can turn it over there and see those three points. Those three points are actually just the application of the sermon. Just the application of the sermon. And this morning, maybe more than any other morning, I make no apologies for you understanding the background to the lesson, to understand the foundation of the lesson. It's pretty grandiose kind of, it's a big thing to claim, okay, this morning I'm going to learn how God relates to me. That's a pretty big challenge right there. It's a pretty big, uh, big ambitious goal that you'd have in one sermon. But if you don't get anything else, get this point of this introduction. And that is how God relates to me, how I know his will, how I live the Christian life, however you want to phrase that. It is so intertwined with the content with the story, with the narrative of what God brings to us in his word, that unless you are tied very closely, in, unless you're woven together with it, you miss God's meaning, 
and you miss what you're really looking for the most, and that is how it relates to your life. You're going to miss it. If you don't get the story, you don't get the message. You don't get the message, you don't have an application. It's as simple as that. So this morning, I'm going to spend a little bit more time back there in Genesis with this whole idea of God's promises, first of all, to Abraham. Because as we look at this, now look at me here, this is important, this structure of what's happening here and what the Bible says is important right here. Uh, we're talking about covenants, we're talking about the way God relates to us, and there are different kinds of covenants in the Bible. Now we've already looked at Adam and Eve. This is what we said about Adam and Eve and that covenant, that it's a covenant of works. It's a covenant of works. God said to Adam and Eve, you can eat from this, but you can't eat from that. I want you to till this. I want you to work this. There are certain things that I want you to do. There are certain things I don't want you to do. You do this, you don't do that, and everything's fine. That's a covenant of works. We have another covenant of works. If I may illustrate the fact in a chronological order, if I'm here in Genesis and I'm talking about that covenant of works right at the beginning with Adam and Eve, I might step down the line a little ways and say that there's another covenant of works. It comes in the book of Exodus, the next book after Genesis. And that's the covenant that God gave to Moses. When Moses went up on the mountain, he got what? He got Ten Commandments and a lot of other laws. And so he made a covenant with Moses and with Israel. You do what? You keep my law and everything's good. You break my law and there will be consequences for doing that. You can see similarly, this is a covenant of works. Now, in between those two covenants, back here a little ways, back in Genesis, there's another covenant. It's the covenant with Abraham that we're going to read here in just a moment. This covenant is a covenant of a promise. Uh, others would say this is a covenant of faith, or this is a covenant even of grace here. This covenant of promise, of faith, of grace with Abraham. God simply called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees. It wasn't because Abraham was good or bad or anything else. It was just God's choice to call Abraham out of his homeland and said, go and I'll show you. Well, there's another covenant in the Bible much like this, but I have to illustratively go all the way down here because it's much like the new covenant. It's much like the new covenant that we have in Christ that's based on a promise, that's based on faith, that's based on grace. It parallels. So like I'm illustrating, we have two covenants of works. We also have two covenants of faith, of promise, of grace. And I want you to see that as the story of the Bible unfolds. All right, now what I want to do is I want to unpack this because where I'm going to go is after we look at this covenant of faith promised to Abraham here, we're going to see some people who got it wrong way down here. You guys didn't understand. And so Paul is going to say, let me explain what I mean to you about the faith, about promise, about grace. I'm going to use an illustration. My illustration is going to be that promise back there with Abraham. Now the reason I'm bringing that up still in the introduction, <laughs> told you don't let a guy preach his dissertation. The reason I bring that up is for two reasons. One, there's some content in here we need to get. 
In fact, there's a rich, rich golden nugget of God's truth that we need to get. We need to get the content. But the second thing that I want you to see is the Bible holds together. It indeed is a story. God is the author. Yes, there were 40-some authors over a period of 4,500 years, and yet it's in in places like this that we see the cohesiveness, that we see the sufficiency, that we see the authority of the one single author, and that is God, God the Holy Spirit bringing it to us. All right, there we go. Where are we in Genesis? We didn't say yet. We're going to be in Genesis 12 to begin with. I hope you're interested. I hope you have a pencil. Genesis chapter 12, here's the covenant to Abraham. Genesis 12, 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed." I'm going to go down a little bit ways, down to about verse 7. And the Bible says this, Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, this is the Abrahamic covenant that will get repeated in chapter 15, and it will also be repeated again in chapter 17 of the book of Genesis. He's going to repeat it. But in this covenant to, to Abram at this point, God promises three things. What are they? Number one, I'll make you a great nation. I'll make you, uh, uh, you know, you're renowned throughout all of the world. You'll be a great, you're descend, you'll have many, many descendants, as he says later, number one. Number two, in order with the text says here, he says, secondly, secondly, what? You'll be a blessing. You'll be a blessing. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Not only am I blessing you and making you a great nation, but through you, every other nation of the world will be blessed. And the third thing in the Abrahamic covenant is, I promise to give you a land. We hear a lot about that in the news today, don't we? A lot of our history, a lot of our political warfare that we hear is always going on about Israel and who owns the land and these kinds of things. So we know that God, way back here, gave the land to them. So this is the promise to Abraham. Now again, what I'm doing is I'm setting up the framework. I want to be able to go down here and talk about us. But I'm not going to convey to you the real truth, the real solid foundational truth, if I don't do this laborious some, for some folks. Me, I love it, man. Give me Bible. Give me Bible. That's all I do. All right, so that's God's promise to Abraham. And now, Abraham being the great guy that he is, and listen, I know one day I'm going to see Abraham, and I'm going to give an account for every naughty thing I said about Abraham. But Abraham is kind of, well, he's kind of too much like me. I'm kind of up and down, up and down. I mean, one minute Abraham's believing God and it's accounted to him as righteousness, and the next minute he's lying about his wife. Oh, no, she's not my wife. She's my sister. Don't kill me. And he does it twice. You know, here God's given him some promises, and uh, he's 75, maybe 80 later on down the line, years old. And... Um, 
And he comes to chapter 15 and he says, uh, well, God, I hear about your prompt. All buzz paraphrase. Be careful here. Don't, don't write these in your notes. These are dangerous when I start paraphrasing. You know, fear not, Abram, in chapter 15 and verse 1 there. I am your shield, your reward. You shall be great. Oh, he says that. But Abraham comes back and says, oh, Lord, what will you give me? For I continue to be childless. At least you can say one thing about Abraham. He got the covenant the first time. I mean, he understood the covenant the first time he said it. I said, you're going to be a great nation. Well, in order to be a great nation, you've got to have at least what? One kid. I mean, it's going to be kind of hard to be big if you don't have one. And so he says, God, what are you going to give me? Because I'm still childless. At least he understood what the covenant was, even though he didn't have it. Oh, I know what I'll do. And so Abraham chooses a way to improve on God's promise. Listen. I got this adopted son. He lives up in Damascus of Syria. His name is Eliezer. And uh, I think, you know, it's a pretty good kid. I think he'll work out fine. Okay, that's not in there. But, but Abraham is kind of kind of arguing his case before God. How about him? And, and God says, eh. right? Not going to do. Abraham's trying to improve on, on what God's done. Well, that didn't work out, and we have the covenant written again, and I do want to come back to that, but I still want to stay on the point. What did Abram do? What did Abram do to improve on God's, uh, God's promises? In fact, when we get to chapter 17, verse 1, this is what it says, and I know I'm talking fast. <sighs> Take a breath when you're listening. I had a prophet who said, I'm going to talk fast, you listen fast. Genesis 17.1 when Abram was 99 years old wait a minute he keeps doing this back in, back in 12 he was 75 years old 17 he's 99 years old 22 22 years 20 no 24 years 24 see I went to Bible college didn't have math 24 years hey <clears throat> now some of you haven't lived 24 years I get that those of us who live 24 years God promised you something 24 years ago how you doing now you know before we go jumping on Abraham give it a little context 24 years and the promise hasn't been answered so what happens well his wife has a brilliant idea her name is Sarai <clears throat> And uh, she says, I know what we can do. Uh, we, can, we, can use, we can use my handmaid, Hagar. My handmaid, Hagar. That's what we can do. I'll tell you what, Abraham. You know, the reason that God didn't let you have Eliezer from Damascus is because he was adopted. You need a child of your own seed. So you go into my handmaid, Hagar, and you have a child by my handmaiden, my servant girl, Hagar, and then God can use that to make a great nation. That's the second thing that he tried to do as far as improve on God's promises. Well, this is what God had to say about that in chapter 17, verse 18. And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael, that's the boy that was born to Hagar, Oh, that Ishmael uh, might 
might uh, stand before you, might live before you. But God said, okay, he may have been slam his hand down. I'm thinking maybe he slammed his hand down. I'm thinking, come on, man. <laughs> I gave you a promise. You know, when God promises, God promises. And he says, no. But Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. He is the son of promise. He's the one I'm talking about. And so Abraham and his attempts to improve on it were not acceptable to God. What was God's way for Abraham? What was it? Back at 17.1. What was God's way? Abraham, this is the way I relate to you. Abraham, this is the way I want you to walk. When Abraham was, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into the nations, and the kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring. Say it with me. Offspring. Offspring. After you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give you and to your offspring after you land of your sojourns, all the land of Canaan, from everlasting possession, I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant. And so he gives him the covenant, and the covenant of circumcision as that sign. And so you see then in verses 15 and following, And God said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall call her name not Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name, and I will bless her, and moreover... I will give you a son by her. I will bless her and, and shall become nations and kings and peoples shall come. Now again, he argues with them about Ishmael. But then look at 22. When he, that is God, had finished talking with him, God, uh, God went up from Abraham. And then Abraham took Ishmael, his son, and all those born in his house, who were brought with, bought with money, every male among the men of Abram's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskin that very day as God had said to him. In other words, uh, all the way back to 15.6 where it says, and Abraham believed God when he gave him the promise, when he gave him the covenant, and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Now Abram believes God in trusting faith, in believing faith, in the obedience of faith, and he obeys him. Abram follows through. That's what God asks Abraham of that covenant. This is the covenant that I'm making with you. 
He didn't say it was conditional in so far as many things, but there's a sign of the covenant. That sign of the covenant is circumcision. That's the historical foundation. Not by things that... Well, let's take a look. Now, Pastor, well, what's your point? Well, let me say the pattern is the same for us. The pattern's the same for us. God has made a covenant with the people of God with the covenant of the new covenant in God. I pick it up in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Here's where I want you to see. Okay, pastor, all right, I got your framework. I have your framework. It's the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of promise, the covenant of faith, the covenant of grace. I've got your pattern. God promised something. Abraham tried to improve on it, but God further explained and challenged Abraham that this is the way you are to live in relationship to me. This is the way you are to keep that covenant. Well, now I hurry to the letter of Galatians. And the first thing I want to do is I want to say, well, What's the promise? Well, I just love Galatians 2.20. I just love Galatians 2.20. I could pick other places because it's throughout the letter, but Galatians 2.20 is wonderful. Here's the promise I would suggest to you. It indeed is the promise of Christ. It is the promise of the gospel. I have been crucified with Christ, Paul writes in 2.20. It is no longer I who live, key word, live, but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. What's the promise? The promise is that you live, that you're free to live, that you have freedom to live. Plain spoken, not theological ramp, but freedom to live, and I know your heart. There isn't a person in here, if we sat and we talked, we would work our way all the way down to the challenges in your life that you're, you're bound up in some way and in that way, and you want to be free. You want to be free to live what Christ says, I came to give life and to give it more abundantly. You want this. I want this. It is inherent with being made in the image of God. Believe it or not, even the lost person deep down in wants to be free. They just search for it in the wrong ways. Now, to properly get this bound up in the context, not yet of Abraham, but the context of the Galatians, I need you to see Galatians chapter 1, verse 6. Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, which says, Paul's writing to them, you people who are believers, now they're Christians, and he says this to them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him, and that him is Christ. I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him, Christ, who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, 
but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. Listen, I was just there a couple of years ago. I was preaching the gospel to you, and many of you believed by faith. The Spirit of God came in, changed your heart in such a way that now you were able to believe God, and you were able to trust in Christ. And now somebody else is coming in here and teaching you that you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to do this, and you got to do this in order to be saved. Why you have you have abandoned, you have deserted the gospel. Because these things, doing this and doing this and doing this, categorically deny the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is not by merit. It's not by human effort. But it's by promise, faith, Grace. That's how it is. He gets to chapter 3 and he says, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Oh, there must be a spell on you. You have left the gospel of grace. Somebody must have come on and waved the wand over you and cast a spell on you because there's no way if you were in your right mind you would abandon the gospel of promise of faith and grace for do this and don't do that. Don't do that and do this. Is that the way you want to live? Why, that's being bound up. That's not being free. Well, he illustrates his point then. And here's how he illustrates his point. Chapter 3, verse 15. Chapter I didn't read 21 through 22. I don't know what it says. Oh, let's look at it. It's in my notes, and I want to read it anyway. Chapter 3. What time is it? We're good, people. It's only 29 after, and I'm having a good time. The rest of you just... I told you. I, I tell you, if you get this... I know I'm a little flippant sometimes because that's just a preacher tool to try and bring some of you back. 321 through... Is the law then contrary to the promise of God? Certainly not. So the law is good. Don't throw it out. For if a law had been given that could give life... Oh, there it is again. See the point? Now, it's just an implication in the text. You would read, you would read right over it if we weren't pointing it out. For if a law had been given that could give life, implication is, is we want what? We want life. See, there's a, could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. It's the promise. Oh, I want to be free. I want to be free. But you see what he says the law does? The do this, don't do that, do this. What does it do? It's, the answer is right in the text. It, 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 it imprisons everything. It locks me up. I'm not free. I never can do enough. And even what I do, I don't do right. And even what you might think I do right, I do with a wrong motive. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? Who will deliver me from what? Who will deliver me from me? Thanks be to God, Christ Jesus. I'm bound up. 
Okay, so, so God's promise to me is that Jesus Christ and the life, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself. That's the promise. You can be free, free. All right, that's my promise. Okay, I got that. Well, how do I try and improve on it? Same framework, Abraham, same framework. Abraham tried to improve on it. How do I try and improve on it? How do you and I try and improve on it? Well, I already read Galatians 1.6. I'm distorting the gospel. I'm going to another gospel. I'm doing, if you will, I'm doing the same thing Adam and Eve did in the garden. I'm doing the exact same thing. Oh God, I know that you said this, but you know, I got a better way. God, I know you're, you're working out some things, but you know, I, I'm, I'm 65 years old. Did he say 65? Wow. I remember when I used to say 30-something like that, made the same joke. It doesn't work at 65. You're old. I'm 65 years old, and God, I've lived a few days now, so why don't you and I just step over here to the side, over in the corner where nobody can hear us, and let me just share with you some of my own ideas. Now, that's a very friendly and entertaining way to say it. The truth is... No, God, I got a better way. I got a better gospel. My gospel is what I want when I want it. You see, gospel means good news, and good news means I get what I want when I want it. Fill in the blank yourself. Every sin has that at its root core. It's a negation of the gospel. God, I have a better way. How do I seek to improve on God's promise of Faith and grace, oh, I try and improve on it in a myriad of ways. You know what? I'm doing it right now. I'm trying to improve on God right now. I do little quirky things that people write me notes about and say, Pastor, why do you do those quirky things? And I usually write back and say something like, I know human nature and I know that people leave a sermon you know, umpteen times during it and think about supper and think about yesterday and think about all kinds of things and they leave and they come back. So I sometimes will do a quirky thing to try and get their attention to come back. Well, Pastor, I don't like quirky things. Well, you know, other people like quirky things. Other people like, and there's not a lot of illustration in this sermon. Oh, Pastor, let me tell you something. If I do 15 illustrations in there, nine times out of 10, I'll go out of here and hear, Pastor, that's the greatest sermon you ever, I doubt very seriously, don't you do it. I doubt very seriously I'm going to hear this is the greatest sermon I ever preached. There's not a lot of stories, not a lot of things to grip my heart. There's not a lot of tear-jerking kind of things. People love those kind of things. Well, pastor, why don't you preach that way? Well, I try to sometimes, but I fail. But you see, right now, I'm hoping that you don't care a hoot and a holler about this sermon, but that you care a hoot and a holler about the text and the Word of God. I don't know what he said, but I sure want to go back and read it again. Man, you want to make a pastor's day. You tell him, Pastor, I'm going to go home and study that a little bit more. Wow, now that's something. And then, when you do, my ego goes, yeah, buddy. See, so I actually am trying to improve on God's plan right now. I'm saying, God, all I need to do this morning is make these people think I'm something great, and I'll feel good. And I can't begin to tell you how many times I've put my hand on the steering wheel, driving out of this parking lot, and thinking, Oh, God, 
would you please do something with that mess that just happened? Because I can't. I, I'm, I'm driving my short 3.1 miles home thinking, oh God, that was horrible. That was just, there was no rhyme or reason. There wasn't, I mean, if anything got out of that, it's by your spirit only because that was just a mess. And you see what I'm doing? Oh, one way is the positive and you get entertained by it, but it's still by the law. It's still by my human effort. God likes me. God loves me. If, if I think or you tell me that, hey, you nailed it today, buddy. Oh, well, now God loves me a little bit better today, doesn't he? Now he does. And I'm driving home, and it was a mess, and I squalor, and poor Sandy has to put up with me all afternoon. But I don't say a lot. I usually just go, Ugh. <laughs> you know, did I really do that? And it was a mess, and and I feel bad, and God doesn't like me. And you know what? That's the same thing, only on the negative side of the coin. God doesn't like me today because I didn't do good. Oh, I'm living by the law. That's how I try and improve on it. Well, what is the right way? What is the right way? Well, the right way is to get God's point. And God's point, now watch me here, to get God's point is the same as it was for Abraham. Only now we're in Galatians, way down here. But you know what the Apostle Paul, God the Holy Spirit, is going to do to make sure you get the point? He's going to say, here's how I'm going to prove the point to you. Look at Abraham. So let's do it right here in the book of Galatians. Chapter 4, verse 21. Chapter 4, verse 21. Where is it? There it is. Chapter 4, verse 20. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law. All right, pause. Every time you see under the law, I know you're not really struggling with the Hebrew law or the law of Israel, but you do struggle with human effort. So for right now, I'm going to simplify this by saying human effort where it says law. Tell me, you who desire to be under the merits of human law, a human effort, do you not listen to the law, to human effort, the nature of human effort? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the slave woman and one by the free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman, I love the word free, the free woman was born through what? Through promise, there it is again. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. That's why we're doing it, because a spire is talking to us about covenants. These two women are covenants, two covenants. One is Mount Sinai. What happened at Mount Sinai? We got what? We got the law. We got the Ten Commandments. One covenant is Mount Sinai, bearing children for freedom. For freedom? For slavery. She is Hagar. Oh, remember what God said to Abraham about Hagar and her offspring Ishmael? No. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. Do I have time to unpack that because this isn't confusing? Here's what I just want to say to you. When he says Jerusalem here, he means the current 
Jewish people living in Jerusalem during the days of Paul. The Jews who are living in Jerusalem during the days of Paul, how were they living? They were living by the law. They were living by the law. So he is saying that the law given to Moses and present day or first century Judaism in Jerusalem were the same thing. They're both living by the law. But the Jerusalem above is what? Oh, there's that word again. The Jerusalem that's above, God's dwelling place, is free. And she is who? If she's our mother, who are we? If she's our mother, we are the children of promise. If she's our mother, we are the children of promise. Skip this 27, would you? And look at 28. Now you brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so it is now. What does that mean? A lot of language. Oh, it means that those Jews who are living in Jerusalem right now, who are living according to the law, are bad-mouthing the Christians who are trying to live by the Spirit. Oh, you can't really be accepted by God. You can't really have a good relationship with God. You can't be living this Christian life thing by God because you're not keeping the law. You're not doing the right thing. And you're doing some wrong things. You cannot be. And they are belittling. That's what he's saying. Now you brothers, like Isaac, children of the promise, but just as at that time, Abraham, who belittled, who belittled Isaac? Ishmael and his mom. If we read the text back there, we would say that Sarah got upset about Hagar. Oh, Hagar and her kid. She thinks she's the hot stuff because she's already got a kid and I don't have a kid. And she thinks that she's queen of shop. Okay, it doesn't say any of that stuff. But you, you know what I'm saying. She's, and then Isaac was born. Oh, wait a minute. You know, Ishmael was the firstborn. You know, so we still have prominence in this household. You see, she was belittling him. Well, just like that, in present-day Jerusalem, these Pharisees, these law keepers, are looking at the Christians and saying, Ah, oh, you're not with God. You can't have a good relationship with God. You're not doing the right things. You're wrong. You've got to add this, and you've got to add this, and you've got to add this. It can't be just this Jesus thing. You're, you're neglecting the law. Paul says, who has bewitched you? Have you believed by what? And furthermore, you know, he says, I can prove it quickly. Okay, I promise. You got, I'll do five more minutes, okay? I could go another five hours, but you got to get this. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in chapter 3. I went back to chapter 3 in the promise that he's giving him, human, uh, other, and then he says, and 16 now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring see remember I told you say offspring a bunch of times singular it does not say offspring it's referring to many but to but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ he's the promise he's the promise what's the promise that God is making to you Jesus and in that you have life and you're free 
He says, I can prove it. This is what I mean. The law which came 400. Why didn't Abraham, why, do, why doesn't the Bible say that Abraham believed the law and followed the law and did everything he was supposed to do and on that basis that God uh, accounted him as righteous? Why did he say that about Abraham? Because Abraham came 430 years before the law was given. There was no law yet. That's why I'm Paul down here saying to you, Galatians, I can prove it to you that Abraham was not justified by doing this and not doing that because the law had not yet been given. There's no way he could have lived that way. And so what I'm saying to you, Galatians, and what I'm saying to you, Boyntonians, I've never said that. Nine years, I've never said Boyntonians. What God is saying to you, Boyntonians, is you can't, don't live by the law. God has given Jesus as the promise. Oh. So that when I go through that wonderful promise of 421 and read about Sarah and Hagar and I get down to verse 30, but what does the scripture say? Cast out the slave woman. This is chapter 4, verse 30. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit. Look at this now. Some people think this. A lot of even Reformed people live this way. But look what the text says. Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. There's no with. It's only Jesus. It's not Jesus plus something. It's not Jesus and the law. When somebody comes to you and says, oh, now you have the Spirit, so now you can obey the law, I just want to rip my heart out. Oh, man, you were two inches from the, from the finish line. You were two inches from the goal, and you annihilated it all by thinking that what God has done is given you the, the promise, the faith, the grace, the inheritance of the Spirit, only to go back and obey the last thing? No! But look at chapter 5, verse 1. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand Firm, therefore, do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Oh, my friends, and this is it. I got to finish. <laughs> How to live in that. I mean, the rest of the book is about that. If you read chapter 5, it's walk after the spirit that's in you, not the flesh. The fruit of the Spirit is this. The fruit of the flesh is this. He's going to spell it out for you, and that's a sermon for another day. But just get the root principle. God doesn't love you better today because you did something great, and He doesn't love you worse because you messed up. You're free from that garbage. Believe the promise. Believe that you have been set free by faith through grace alone. Grace, by its definition, is without merit. You take grace, you add merit to it, you nullify grace. It's not grace. I don't know what it is. It's the garbage we've made it up to be. But it's not. I tell you, evil one, I tell you, sin, I tell you, get thee behind me, for I am hidden in Christ. Therefore, I, I know I am crucified in Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, 
I live by the faith of the Son of God who gave himself for me. That's the promise. Lay hold of it. Get free. Stop thinking it's something you got to do. I can't begin. Look, this is what happened. You know what this means when the preacher does this? Not a thing. Most people think he's finished his sermon, and he usually goes on to preach another one. I can't begin to tell you how many times I've done this and then talking to folks afterwards in class or in a Bible study, and all I hear is, well, boy, I got a long way to go. I sure need to work harder at this. You know, that hurts. And why? Because we're hard-headed. I'm, listen, I just preached it, and I promise you, I'll go out of here today, and I'll battle it. I will. But thanks be to God through Christ Jesus, I am free. And I will not go back to slavery. When I stand before him on that day and he says, why should I let you in? I'm going to say, because it pleases and magnifies you. Not what I did. God, I pray for these people and I pray for me that we would believe the covenant made to Abraham through promise and faith and grace and that we'll look at the sons of Hagar and the relatives of Ishmael in the metaphor, in the allegory and say, get thee behind me, Satan. For God has accepted me into the beloved on the blood of Jesus Christ alone and no other way. Now I pray, Father, if anyone in this room, even if they've heard and all that they, they've heard is, is that they're bottled up and they want to be free, I pray that you would draw them to yourself. God, I pray that you'd set them free in Jesus. And, and that may even be foreign language. I pray that you'd just have them seek out somebody like me or other pastors or elders or just a friend sitting beside them that they'd say, I, I want to know more about how to have this freedom. God, I pray that you'd give it in Jesus' name. Amen.